Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast, presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films, or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. Whoa. <laughs> Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Maddie Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Lior Phillips, host of This Must Be The Gig. We're a weekly podcast that documents everything about the world of live music. Speaking with choreographers, costume and set designers, the people who run beloved venues and festivals, and, of course, speaking with musicians about that one gig that changed their lives. Get your peek behind the curtain at consequenceofsound.net, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. At long last, welcome back to Filmography, a Consequence Podcast Network production. I'm your host, Dominic Suzanne Mayer. I'm the film editor at Consequence of Sound, and I'd like to introduce my guests for this week. Hi, I'm Natalie Marsh. I'm a live storyteller at Second City, Elbow Room, other venues around uh, the Chicagoland area. And I'm Justin Gerber. I'm a co-host of another Consequence of Sound podcast. A couple of them, actually. One is the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast, and Halloweenies, a Michael Myers podcast. Well, and you're right at home given the Halloweenies show because for the next five weeks, we're going to be talking the films of John Carpenter. Now, before you get pedantic, these are just the feature-length films, including the TV films and not the Masters of Horror shorts. So we're just going to establish that as a baseline right up front. You know what work we're doing. You know what work we're not doing. Um, we will not be largely talking about his NBA fandom, although it is always relevant to any and all dialogues regarding the master of horror, John Carpenter. <laughs> so I thank you two for joining me, and I thank all of you out there for listening. Now, if you enjoy the show filmography, we're going to lead with some plugs everyone's favorite part of every podcast so you can find us on facebook at facebook.com slash filmography podcast that's where we'll have all pertinent announcements about future programming and you'll be able to find this show and get at us best there you can also leave us a rating if you enjoy the show on itunes and or Podchaser, by which i mean or not and because you should review it in both places you love filmography mm. filmography is life <laughs> um as always we're excited to be back but if you have ideas in the future for things you'd like to hear us talk about, we always are making a short list, so please let me know. Unless it's somebody suggesting Dennis Dugan movies, which more than one friend of mine has done. Uh, that could be a fun challenge. No, 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 Justin. We are not going down this road. Not when we're just getting yeah. started. 
But let's circle back around to whence we began. Mm. We are going to spend the next five weeks, including this one, talking about the 20 feature-length outings of John Carpenter, who is a favorite filmmaker at Consequence of Sound. You would probably assume this from the fact that we have an entire podcast about one of his classic films alone. But we're going to talk about all of his classics in the next few weeks, and we're going to talk about a few films that are... uh, Classics to completists. We'll uh, we'll put it that way. We use euphemisms here at Filmography. (laughs) Polite. So for week one, we're going to talk about John Carpenter versus intergalactic evil. We're leading off light here at Filmography. Whatever. This summer we were talking about Kubrick. You know what you're in for at this point. But... Um, We want to talk a little bit in the coming weeks about the ways in which Carpenter scares us as much as the films themselves, because a lot of his work is very much reflective of whether it's an ethos of the time, a politics of the time, whatever have you, whether it might have been where the filmmaker himself existed at that particular moment in time. You have a body of work that spans decades from the late 60s until he hung it up, at least for now, in 2010 with The Ward. So you have a body of work that's lapsing over a number of distinctly American eras and a lot of distinctly different ones at that. And I think some of the films we're going to talk about on this week's discussion are really reflective of that experience in one way or another. But boomeranging back around to where we began, I want to kind of open the dialogue by asking the two of you how it is that you interpret Carpenter's visions of evil as laid out in the four films we're discussing this week, which will be 1974's Dark Star, 1982's The Thing, 1995's Village of the Damned, and 2001's Ghosts of Mars. I shouldn't have left it to hum on the note of Ghosts of Mars, but we'll come back to that. Understandable. Regardless, I do open the floor to the two of you. How does he understand terror beyond humanity, at least in the purview of these films? That's a great question. That's a very good question. Wow, he's done. That is a deeper question than anything you'll find in Ghosts of Mars or Village of the Damned. But I will attempt to answer this as best as I can. Yeah, Justin, you kick it off there. I'm going to try my best. John Carpenter has always had a mistrust of the government, one. You'll see a lot of that in The Thing. You don't trust anybody in The Thing. Um, mistrust is all about, it's, all, it's found throughout Village of the Damned. And obviously people become corrupted in Ghosts of Mars. And then you've got the mistrust of the government and goofy people who do dangerous things in Dark Star. And who happen to be part of the government as well. So I could try to say government a couple more times. But the point is, John Carpenter... <laughs> Does not like Big Brother. This is a topical podcast. Yes. We're here with takes. Are you ready? <laughs> I've got some more. <laughs> no, this is not an Alex Jones show. Please keep listening. This is not an Alex Jones type show. I haven't started grunting yet, but yes, that's right. Well, I agree with you, Justin. Um, as far as that, I'm suddenly overtaken with the vision of Kirstie Alley and Village <laughs> of the Damned. I'm sorry, that doesn't really answer your question. Uh, but it is vintage Kirstie Alley, and that was important to me, and also terrifying in an intergalactic way. Well, and I honestly think, like, 
No, we're going to answer your no, question. No, we're going to make that a fucking segue yet. Just wait. <laughs> no. So in all four of these films, you definitely have, yes, the contempt for the government, but also the contempt for the social order at large in, in one respect or another. And these are very different social strata as we're going to talk about here. But I think one of the points I really want to draw out and that I want us to kind of keep in mind as we're having this discussion in the next hour or so is we're going to be talking about films in which intergalactic evil as our theme goes is very much an extension of human evil to one end or another and actually on that point i'm just i'm too excited to not jump straight into dark star so we're gonna go ahead and do that hello bob are you with me of course are you willing to entertain a few concepts I am always receptive to suggestions. Fine. Think about this then. How do you know you exist? This is one of Carpenter's earliest features. What is astounding to me is that this is a film released in 1974. So this is before Alien and before Star Wars, and yet it is a trenchant satire of the kind of movie that both of those would go on to create as a whole horror subgenre onto itself, the isolationist thriller of people trapped in deep space. Dan O'Bannon, who's in this film, came up with the story for Alien. And so there's a lot of that going on in Dark Star. Just uh, granted, the alien in this film is much more goofier than the alien in right. Ridley Scott's Alien. But there is a lot of sequences of the alien hiding out in this ship, tracking another astronaut. So the, the, the fingerprints are all over it. One hell of an alien, too. Absolutely. <laughs> and we're going to, I promise, we're going to come back to a cuddlier kind of malevolent alien presence in just a second. Fine. But. Dan O'Bannon is one of four scientists, you could say very, very loosely, on a ship called the Dark Star bound for a mission into uncharted deep space. But that is really just a setup. The premise of Dark Star does not belie how goddamn funny it is. And that's kind of where I want to start with our discussion of the film, because honestly, this is like nothing else Carpenter has made. And before we jump into a couple of movies that are very Carpenter for better or worse, this is a complete outlier because, Natalie, you and I were discussing before the show a bit, it resembles BBC sitcoms of the time and Dr. Strangelove more than anything. Dr. Strangelove was something that really stuck out to me. Um, I really, the, just the opening sequence, the delivery, um, exactly. Yeah, the opening sequence with the um, the missive being sent from the Antarctic Earth Base, which mm. I thought was very nice, um, up to the Dark Star, which is the most blasé statement of lazy patriotism and yeah. also condolences, oddly enough. It's an incredibly funny sequence, and I think one that really sets the tone for the film to come. A lot of pauses, a lot of slight smiles while saying some very, very terrifying things. Uh, definitely. They're the goofiest set of planet destroyers you'll, you'll ever meet, especially in John Carpenter films. Oh, absolutely, because before the... And I think we, Justin, you bring up the other key point of the film... This is a 90-minute movie, or sub-90-minute, but all the same. This is a feature-length movie where you spend a time with a group of wacky Americans decimating other planets in deep space. A planet is nuked before the title even appears on screen. And good riddance, I say. Yeah. 
Well, you know, it was in the way of absolute colonization, as the film notes early on. That's the only reason. So we're going to come back to this, too. But when it comes to his politics, John Carpenter is not an understated filmmaker. (laughs) And I think Dark Star is one of the blunter force examples of that, because this is a movie that is... Natalie, to your point about Dr. Strangelove, this is a politically exhausted movie. And one thing I wanted to bring up in particular is the way in which it makes it makes the um, the Space Force, because essentially, much like in Ghosts of Mars, they're space cops of a sort. They're more of a space military, if anything. Mm. But still, it makes not only does it give you a read for the palpable ennui of them being trapped in deep space for years, at least one of whom is actively convinced that he should not be on this expedition (laughs) with the fact that they are out essentially committing anonymous space genocide, which just exists in the periphery of the film, which I find really interesting. Agreed. And to tackle, I actually have the same thing in my notes about how this is very much informed by Strangelove, but also 2001. A lot of the external things that are happening on the spaceship, whether it's an astronaut floating off, pretty much gets parodied here, like you know, from the event of 2001. A lot of the interior shots are straight from 2001. The, um, the, the computer system gone awry, also 2001. So it's, it's all there. I mean, it's Conversing all paying homage. With the yeah. computer, 2001. And of course, it, it's the, a, a woman arguing with a man and vice versa, which adds a little satire to it as well. Well, absolutely. And I think it's even hitting some of those same satiric notes as Strangelove in that respect, yeah. where it's the men are absolute buffoons down to the male identifying bomb number 20 on the ship. I swear the um, the lead, it sounded just like Peter Sellers, or he was trying to do an Americanized Peter Sellers, like the American president. And that's something I couldn't really get out of my head. I didn't think about that, but that's actually a pretty good point, too. And just the last shot of this movie, of which I just love, of him surfing down into the planet, it very much yeah. resembles the end of, of Strangelove, oh, of absolutely. him falling mm-hmm. down the bomb. Right. Well, and one thing, one thing I want to tease out, because we'll come back around to the comedy in a minute here, because this movie's funny as hell in a way I was not prepared for when putting this show together. But there is a genuine pathos to those final scenes, too, which yeah. is very hard for satire to pull off. Satire where the emotional weight actually lands. Strange Love nails it, and I would argue this film does as well. Because I think it really gets at something kind of unsettling about how, I mean, it's hardly the only film to make the point that space is a place of isolation and endless terror. But it also gets at the idea that, you know, maybe these people were kind of half-acidly stumbling into something of genuine meaning. They're the sequence where um, the one gentleman drifts off into the Phoenix asteroid field. Beautiful. It's a death sequence, but it's poignant in its way. I think. Of, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Natalie. I was just. Um, he was experiencing euphoria hmm. as he drifted off into that. I think throughout the film, we're you know we're shown especially earlier on those scenes where they're kind of at their bunks and just dealing with the mundanity of it all and the boring day in day out. And I think that there was something almost exciting that they were about to go to their deaths, but at least something was happening. They I found achieved that very transcendence. Curious. Because yeah. earlier in the film, the character of Doolittle. He's the one that surfs at the very end, right? He talks earlier in the film to uh, Talby about how one of his favorite memories is surfing. 
back when he was on Earth. And that's something that actually was great. And obviously, when you're trapped on a spaceship, you can't really go surfing. So this is actually a final opportunity to do that, even though he was going to his end. I was very, very struck by how profound the last 30 seconds were, especially in that regard. Absolutely. Like, it, it, it's a black comedy that is almost... It's almost kind of Three Stooges-esque at points. I mean, the entire elevator staging goes so quickly and so flawlessly from being genuinely terrifying and kind of alarming, especially coming... So I should set this sequence in context. The sequence in which when the alien pet goes rogue, that sequence starts off as hijinks, turns terrifying the second the alien pulls it out... Carpenter really lets you linger on the image of this man dangling for his life in the elevator shaft. There's a real tension to both his score, which we'll talk about in the back half, and the image of him trying to unscrew the wing nuts one-handed. And then it immediately transitions effortlessly into this sight gag of him not being able to crawl out of the elevator blowing the bolts and coming out wearing the mm. elevator floor like he's wily e. coyote. I mean, this is high comedy alongside really understated comedy, alongside pitch black comedy, alongside this genuine interp- like this genuine exploration of philosophy. Yeah, human terror in the face of the unknown. And it was a student film. <laughs> a student film. A major motion picture, you know? Uh, but a student film would say, I think, therefore I am, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's just, they, of course you would quote Descartes. <laughs> <laughs> As any good USC student would, of course. Okay. Well, and I and I will say that there is there is a genuine comic grace to a man floating into the face of a space nuke and yelling at it. Will you entertain a few concepts? I'll just say, you know, I'm a big John Carpenter fan. I've seen every one of his films except for Elvis at this point. But before Elvis, the last one I had not seen was Dark Star. And I watched it after rewatching Vampires, which we'll talk about, <laughs> we'll talk about later on, and um, Ghosts of Mars. And I, I was, I get, the word that kept coming back to me is how charming this movie was. Mm-hmm. Made for absolutely nothing, but there was more imagination and, dare I say, effort put into this cheap student film that was put into either vampires or ghosts of Mars for that matter. It's, it's, you know, it's just the, it's the spirit of the youth. You can't really recapture when you get older in some cases. And I was going to say, this is, this is very much an early project, but I think the scope of ambition for an early project to meld these, what I would argue to be these at times borderline Ed Wood visuals, particularly (laughs) in those exterior shots of the Mm -hmm. dark star, Fusing that with this aggressive Terry Southern-esque political satire and then careening it into full-blown existential dread in the last 15 minutes of the film. What was he going to say to Doolittle? <laughs> we'll never know. We'll never know. We'll never know what he had to say. No. Though, man, the thing's staunch refusal. I love how Doolittle gives it about 10 minutes. And in 10 minutes of solitude, Bomb 20 circles around to, you are a false positive. <laughs> There is absolutely nothing you can say to me which will have rhetorical meaning. Right. It's just good no, stuff. It's, I, I don't know. It's, so if you have only one takeaway from filmography, and I hope you like have more takeaways in the next four odd weeks, but 
we cannot recommend Dark Star enough. I think we would agree as a collective. Yeah. This is this is compelling filmmaking. This is ambitious filmmaking. These are the kinds of movies that were only made in the 70s, pretty much. Because even indie movies now try to have a gloss that this very transparently doesn't. And I would argue that's part of the charm. The fact that there is a scene where you can see the dark star pass behind an asteroid and the asteroid very transparently becomes a cutout on screen. <laughs> oh, there's blue screen. There's green screen imagery popping, you know, ab- above certain actual images in front of you. It looks like just something that was cheap made in 1972 at USC. You know, there's, they're not even trying to mask it in any way either. It's like, this is the movie that we made and, and here it is. And it works. And like you said, there's so many movies that come out now that are just basically made to remind you of a time. And often, more often than not, it reminds you of the early 70s when this was actually, actually made, you know. And there was a tactile physicality to those films that has largely been abandoned by even a lot of really great filmmakers. I mean, people love the possibilities of digital, but there is something distinctly physical and aesthetic about people being crammed into what, to go back to my BBC sitcom analogy, look like closed sets. The shots of the three of them offset in the cabin of the ship Mm. look like closed sets, like three camera sitcom sets. Same for their barracks, which strikes a weird balance between being really funny and really sad because you see the wall of porn first and then you see the commander's fatigues laid out on the one bed second. Right. Ugh, it's disturbing. But that's just, that sequence alone is what I'm talking about with their, their boredom. And Pinback, I feel like, is the one that's always trying to keep everybody uplifted and everybody else is just resigned to being miserable at a certain point. I mean, Pinback even puts on those glasses with the eyes popping out. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about <laughs> who, like, that. Who has laughed at that bit since they were five years old? But he's, he genuinely thinks this is a funny thing I'm doing. Yeah. The desperation there is, is great. Well, and I think there's something, too, before we move on from the film that's really interesting in the way this is 1974. And I think the way in which the film very much situates them as grunts in a thankless situation working for an America that doesn't care, there's a distinct Vietnam parallel there Mm. that I think is being drawn very clearly to an end. Just the absolute blasé boredom of a bunch of people waiting to die in so many words. Good point. Very good point. That's something that I think John Carpenter probably would have said back in 1970. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm flattered in that respect. But uh, all right, we're going to jump in the time machine now. Mm. 21 years ahead. And we're going to talk about the village of the dam. I don't like the way you're looking at me, boy. <laughs> I got a gun, too. And I ain't the only one. One day somebody's gonna get up on a rooftop and they're gonna start picking you little bastards off. One by one by one. John Carpenter's Village of the Damned, as it were. Now, for those of you uninitiated, this is the second cinematic iteration of The Village of the Damned. The film works off the novel Midwitch Cuckoos, the story of a terrifying town struck by a blackout, who wakes up to find their fertile women pregnant, their children silver-haired and terrifying, and their adults soon committing suicide in a number of cinematic and unsettlingly The Happening-esque ways. Now, those of you watching... Those of you listening at home, as I stop myself to consider, you're not watching a podcast, and if so, I'm terrified now. But... 
those of you listening at home will know that we're getting into 1990s John Carpenter now, which is a very different John Carpenter than we're going to talk about at points throughout this series. 90s John Carpenter was doing his best to work within the studio system, which at that time was open to horror movies, but only if they were the kind of horror movie that could sell to people in the suburbs who don't actually like that many horror movies that much. Mm -hmm. Because one thing that I find distinctly unnerving about Village of the Damned is the way in which it is a horror film in which many people die violently and brutally, often on screen, and yet there is a, a, a decided lack of terror. I, yeah, I, I've never been so not worrisome about a woman boiling her arm in like pasta water before. I was just like, yes, this is happening. I, 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 One of the kids is doing it. That's not cool. I will say I was actually kind of stunned because I haven't seen this movie in about 20 years. I thought the first 40 minutes was actually pretty good. I, I, was, I was pretty impressed with how patient they were being with... Delivering the thrills and chills. Yes. You know what I mean? I don't know. I, there's one genuinely... <laughs> the monster mask. Yeah. It was a graveyard smash. Oh, God. Oh, I I'll, never, I'll never make it to number one with we're, that We're delivery. entering into copyright territory. Now. Yeah, true. Um, much like happy birthday. We can never wish anyone a happy birthday. Oh, no, I've gone too far. We can use the UCB version, can't we? Yeah, true. It's a cover. Covers are protected. Ah. But I would agree, Justin, that there is... Up to a point, a genuine terror to some of the film's early scenes, particularly the montage sequence in which the whole town falls asleep. Mm. Down to the fact that actually one of the early shots understates the one gentleman with the misfortune to fall asleep on the grill. Oh my god, that was disgusting. He's he the, looked like a burnt radish. That was effective. That is. That that's was, genuinely... Yeah. There's a genuine horror to those early scenes of... Everybody stopping in mid-action. And yes, some people die in car accidents and some people turn into burnt radishes. Mm. But there is a genuine horror to those scenes that is then undercut when the movie confronts what I would argue is one of the great horror movie conundra of the modern era. Particularly the era where... You know, we're talking about cliches openly. You know, this is after Peter Jackson's horror movies. This is only a year before Kevin Williamson makes genre tropes a household name with Scream, the first Scream. By then, your audience was literate enough to where they could perceive certain things coming up front. And in that respect, I feel like Village of the Damned, when watched, granted, through a 2018 lens, but all the same is a movie about watching adults be walked to the gallows, essentially. I would not say there's a great deal of drama in waiting for these people dying beyond, and I don't know about you two, when I was watching the movie, I was just trying to play the game with myself of who was going to eat it next. Oh, I was trying to think, um, can I block my thoughts? <laughs> yes, I was actually thinking that. And I was like, what would I think of? And, you know, a brick wall would do no good for me. I don't know. Just think about my cat. But what if that somehow would transport into evil into my cat? And You know what I would do? What? I would just keep replaying that image <laughs> of James Woods walking out of that <laughs> Just a gif of him walking out of that hotel room and exploding behind him. Over and over again, while they are saying, "You masked your thoughts well, Justin." I'm like, just. I think we'd all take that. Oh my god! Oh, you, to your point about the lack of drama, Dom, I feel like there's a whole act missing here, because the issue is we jump from the first forty minutes to okay, here we are. The kids are definitely evil. Everybody knows that they're evil. 
there's no more nuance for the next hour. How they are they going up to die? Overnight. I was going to say, yeah. we get about five minutes of David specifically as a toddler and then the other murder daughter, and that's about it. All of a sudden, the kids are eight years old and traveling in gendered pairs, which takes Christopher Reeve half the movie to suss out as suspicious. Speaking of terror, you know, there's kind of an underlying, if you know anything about Christopher Reeve, Mm. it's his last movie before he's paralyzed. And so you're watching that, too. And knowing, like, there's this terrible thing coming to this beautiful man that you're watching and who's trying to save the day. Who and was a stone-cold hunk he even was in a the mid-90s. He was a hunk even when he was scrunching his face so hard thinking about that brick wall, baby. <laughs> and I believed he was trying to block those children, too. I actually believed that. I believed it, too. A bunch I of hunks in this movie. We got Michael Pere was in this from um, Streets of Fire. He was the one who gets into that truck accident. That's in the very beginning of the movie. Absolutely. He leaves town, comes back into town. He gets blown away. Absolutely, because he's yeah, kind Peter of Jason, our, who's <laughs> no he's our, Peter Jason. He's our ersatz Steve Gutenberg, who's like, <laughs> oh, this is going to be our guy. And then that's your misdirection early on. Which, again, these early scenes are genuinely effective. Mm-hmm. They are, because there's something truly unsettling about a grocery store of people splayed out in exactly the place they were. It's been done, but maybe that was done just a little earlier. Mm. Well, and I I really feel like a lot of the early scenes work. And then, yes, the second the kids are of age and they start yelling exposition as threats, the film goes tilt pretty quickly. I think you'd agree. And it's just basically every seven minutes we're we're showing kids eyes turn yellow. And yeah, you can only sustain that for so long. Or lime green. Or, well, it or, was or white in some cases. I was gonna say so. The progression, if I'm remembering correctly, was lime green meant possession, yellow meant a warning, red meant you are about to commit suicide in extremely movie friendly fashion. Like the one dude laying on his broom. Like I know he's a janitor, but that's that's really going over the top. That sounded of putting like it the forward. security risk. <laughs> that actor, that yeah, actor, I prefer it greatly. <laughs> That actor, who's the who's the uh, the drunk janitor, has been that age for fifty years. <laughs> he he was the same age in Escape from New York as another drunk man in Escape from New York. I swear, it's same age, and I was like fifteen years earlier. It's unbelievable. What's no. the story with that guy? Is he still alive? Some say he's still playing drunk <laughs> actors to this very day. I do have a question about the. I, I'm not sure if we can go to the final, like one of the final scenes yet. Sure. The no, final please, scene. please. But he has the bob in the briefcase. Mm. We can reveal that, correct? Yes. So Christopher Reeve has the bomb in the briefcase. That It's too late. The children notice the time is running out. So it blows up. And then uh, the school teacher and David, right, mm-hmm. can see that in the background. But then an entirely different explosion happens at the other end of the building. And I was just wondering what you guys thought about that. I think, let me put on my heart out here. There I were think two uh, the um, yeah. explosion might have triggered another uh, intergalactic. Another intergalactic, uh, no, another like a gas explosion somewhere else in the barn, maybe. Yeah. Right. maybe you know, abandoned barns, abandoned barns are absolutely full of flammable. They're chemicals. very flammable. That's, yeah, a, well, that's a commonly you don't, misunderstood there could be a cow problem. In there that has flammable. Gas. You don't light a match in a barn. You don't. don't. Do that's don't why smoke I a myself cigarette every don't, day. Don't be a cool guy. No, no. Unless you're James Woods in leathers, wandering away from an mm. explosion. Hold on, let me block my thought. Let me block. Let me my, block my, my thoughts. thoughts. Yes. James Bond walking out. James Bond walking out. Like, 
So one other thing that's really interesting to me, if a little bit disappointing, admittedly, is the way in which Village of the Damned starts off with actually a pretty compelling hook. Say that an entire town experiences simultaneous immaculate pregnancy and then has to deal with the problems. Now, the film hand waves it by having their alien babies tell them to be uh, pro-life, which is kind of a weird, gross thing in the film. But then, be that as it may, the film really calls into question kind of one of our great social taboos. What if not only do you hate your baby, but your baby is actively evil? Now, in um, later this year, we're going to be addressing this topic in a previously recorded episode where we talk about we need to talk about Kevin. Oh, yeah. Ooh. And granted, that's the only time we're going to be able to link Lynn Ramsey to John Carpenter throughout this <laughs> series. But I think in the same way, Village of the Damned is very much playing on that. I, the social taboo of you have to love your child no matter what your child turns into, mm-hmm. at its best, at least. You made the point that it's trying. You think it was trying to be pro-life. I think that the aliens were obviously trying to make sure that these women carry out their pregnancies. But at the end of the day, they should have got those abortions. Oh, Jesus <laughs> Christ, Justin! Well, it's true, though. It's true. <laughs> they were obviously born evil, well, and they're going to take Kirstie over the world. Alley was pushing them. She's like, "Have your babies." Have these babies, right? That's true. Yeah, she was, and she ends up cutting up her own midsection this is for her troubles. Yeah, Ali, I can't stress that enough because do you know how many times I used to rent for richer or poorer? Wow. You rented that a lot. Yes, I don't know why. The great Tim Allen. Um, <laughs> she was beloved in our little community. She was great on Cheers and the movie Runaway, directed by. Michael Crichton. Well, she wasn't on Frasier, so I didn't see her. She never popped up. Shelly Long popped up later on. Oh, I know. You know, <laughs> what were we talking about? We're oh, trying oh, to have a conversation oh, so about Kirstie, Village of my the favorite part, My favorite part of the first 40 minutes, though, is when Kirstie Alley says, you know, I'll give you 3000 you know, every month for those babies. And then that one dad stands up and it's like, well, what if we've got two babies on the way? <laughs> and she says, well, that'd be 6000 a month. And he just sits down with this big smile on his face and he goes... Six thousand dollars. Six thousand. And you know, we're talking about these oh, films. God, yeah. You know, as eerie as it is, we're the better part of twenty-five years removed from the vil- release of *Village of the Dam*. God help us all. And we're sitting here chortling about that as a sizable <laughs> sum, but. Having all grown up at some age, I feel like six grand would not be that much to us as children and teens in the 90s, let alone an audience of that time. If you right. adjust that to 2018, I think it's $600,000 a month, too. So that's incredible. Satire. <laughs> We're already launching into the bits here for Village of the Damned. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. And maybe that's a good microcosm for Village of the Damned. Simply, I do not know. That's a good point. I do not know why there is a helicopter crash that is depicted entirely off screen during the film. <laughs> I do not know why the epidemic of adult suicide is not noticed by anyone in the town until they form a torch mob out of Frankenstein as though that will help. Right. Wasn't the main woman's uh, screaming words from the Book of Job? I think what set her off before she self-immolates. I think yeah. what sets her off is that her husband, Mark Ham- the great Mark Hamill, oh, had just killed himself. Terrible. And I think that is what triggered her to yeah. really lead this mob at that point. Mark Hamill attempting... Now, if nothing else, it might be hard for us 
to convincingly sell you on watching Village of the Damned in the purview of this podcast. No, watch it. But it does give you the sanctified cinematic image of Mark Hamill in Vestal Decor Mm. attempting to open sniper fire on a child. Vessel Decor, one of my early punk band names, by the way. <laughs> also, I, I had to write this down because I started cracking up. Do you know what Mark Hamill's first lines are in this movie? Why? What are they? What Given are with they? the most dramatic line read, too. He, right. he goes up to Linda Kozolowski, who's the, uh, the, David's mother in this. He says, we need finger paints. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then 10 minutes go by, no more. It's like the first 30 minutes. Oh, this is man. only line. Luke Skywalker, <laughs> we need finger paints. I'd love the finger paint with Mark Hamill. It'd be fun. You draw some Luke Skywalker disappearing. Spoiler alert. You know, you could do a lot you of know, things. Yeah, he'd make you laugh and then your finger would go the wrong way and you'd be like, stop it, Mark. Mark, I am running out of green paint here. Yeah. And, all right, I don't have a segue out of Mark Hamill finger painting. I'll be honest. Like, Justin, you've been on the show. You know mm-hmm. I value a good segue here and there, but I don't have one right now. So we're going to move on into another late era Carpenter film with no further preamble. The one you've all been waiting for. The one you came to this episode specifically to listen to us if you're a listener or discuss if you're the people in this room with me. 2001's Ghosts of Mars. Where's the train? I don't know. You don't know? What the fuck is that supposed to mean? Lieutenant Ballard to the train, come in. Plan A is fucked up. You got a plan B? Yeah, it's the same as plan A. You got any fresh ideas? Yeah, what we should have done in the first place. Shit! Come on, you mindless motherfuckers! What month did this come out again? Do we know? This was a film released August 24th, 2001. Oh my God. Ghosts of Mars is perhaps our most late <laughs> August movie. Um, I was going to make another point, though. That's what, 17 days away from the day that. Uh, oh no! We'll never forget. Yeah, this Justin. is, is pre 9 11, Ghosts of Mars. How about that? One of our last artistic treasures before the entire <laughs> right. nation fell into a fugue of racism. Oh, God. Truly, Ghosts of Mars stood alone against the tide. The commentary is all there, too, in the movie, which is which is also disturbing. So. So, Same year as such great movies as Charlie's Angels and What Women Want. Yes, great, great examples of the American form. Yeah. What, do you, what do you think Helen Hunt's whispering into Mel Gibson's ear in that poster? I don't know, but I don't like her. <laughs> Whoa. I like how we had two people on the poster. Mel Gibson was one of them. And you went to, I don't like her. That's incredible. Well, you brought her up. Hey, and you know. I don't like her. And I'm not mad about her. Do you mean? Do you get oh, yeah. well, I got it. I got Paul okay. Reiser smiling somewhere. Get out. Yeah. I, I, I've been motioned to get out of the room. I wonder if Helen All Hunt right, was the lead of Ghosts of Mars, how that would have worked out. Anyway, let's go back I to Ghosts of Mars, I wouldn't have been able to I'm watch sorry. it because you know what? <laughs> Natasha Henstridge does her job. She, she does do her job, all she things does. considered. Now, Ghosts of Mars for the Uninitiated is late era Carpenter. This is the year 2001. It is the end of the 22nd century on Mars. Mars has been 80% terraformed. Space cops are rotating around Mars attempting to terraform the remaining hostile territories. And then a team of space cops led by the aforementioned Natasha Henstridge, Ice Cube, back when he wasn't a terrific actor quite yet, and Jason Statham with a full head of hair 
among others. Pam Greer. Pam Greer, Clea Duvall. We can talk about the, the character actors in this yeah. movie all day because this is like a fever dream where someone asked, what if we can take a bunch of prominent character actors and send them into the most canon films looking movie of the 2000s? It makes Masters of the Universe look like Empire Strikes Back. No Ooh. offense. It does. It looks awful. It looks like they just switched the, the sides of the sets around at certain points to do different It shoots. honestly does. So for a film set on Mars, Ghost of Mars feels remarkably small. And I think I'd like to start there. Yeah, start small as a matriarchal society. Oh, Jesus Christ. So yeah, actually, let's jump into that too. The Life description says, yeah. of Mars late 20th century as a matriarchal society, which as far as I can gather, simply means that women talk shit also. They talk shit, hey. they're in charge, and they're going to put, like, put your arm behind your back and you're going to say uncle. That's uh, true. And they're not going to put up with any bullshit, as, yeah. as you learn throughout too. I'm not just pretty. I can move. Yeah, and they do move often in the form of slow roundhouse kicks. Now, those of you listening at home have probably sussed out by now. We as a collective are not going to use this first episode of Filmography as an apologia for Ghosts of Mars. Now, I know some of you are going to tune out in response to this, but the fact is we cannot we cannot go to bat. I think on solid conscience, as people who do film criticism to some extent or another... We cannot publicly endorse that anyone listening to this show watch the film Ghosts of Mars. Other than the way in which the film offers a synthesis of so many of John Carpenter's better movies flung mm -hmm. into a blender haphazardly at one time, that it almost feels like an Asylum Films parody of a Carpenter movie, as opposed to a film that Carpenter himself made. I can't even do that because if you're, unless you're a completist, I would never wish any, any upon anybody to, to, to watch this particular film. Now I was going to say, I'm endorsing completism. <laughs> I am also endorsing completism in the case of a film in which Ice Cube plays a man named Desolation Williams. And I want, before we move on and we do bits, I want to really let this linger mm. in the collective consciousness of the filmography listenership. Desolation Williams. Now, Desolation Williams is possibly my favorite cult film of 1976. It is not, however, a character I can take seriously in a movie in which Jason Statham is only addressed by his surname, which leads to people yelling Jericho at him. I think Carpenter's always had a flair for great names, though. Even in, like, Assault and Precinct 13, I think his name is Napoleon Jones or something like that. And then there's, you know, obviously Snake Plissken. I think he was trying to give, uh, he was trying to assign Ice Cube a real badass name. Please put badass in quotation marks. Um, just to kind of give him that gravitas that those other characters and, if not, performances had in those earlier films. If we're going to talk about gravitas, we're going to talk about Joanna Cassidy. Please. I love Joanna Cassidy. Who I originally mistook for Holland Taylor, and I'm really sorry, <laughs> and I apologize to the listeners for that. But anytime I see Brenda Chenoweth's mom on screen, I have respect. This is pre-Two and a Half Men, right? 
Yes. And this is post Bosom Buddies. <laughs> so Holland Taylor could have been in this movie. I don't in know what that, happened. In that uncertain time in American cultural history. Between 1984 It's, it's kind of like when I was writing notes about vampires, which we never really talked about. Mm. And I would write James Caan a bunch of times, the same James Woods. So it's kind of like Holland Taylor and Joanne Cassidy mix it up for me. Now, we also have in this film, to your point, Natalie, a number of strong women. Mm. How would the two of you characterize the depiction of strong women in the film Ghosts of Mars? Natalie. (laughs) Oh, I get to start? That's so nice. Please, please. Um, Natasha, she goes it alone with that surety in her eyes. And uh, I... Appreciate that she carries a medallion of pills that keep the ghosts uh, away, but she can see things. We're gonna come back to that. Oh, yeah. oh I'm sorry. No, I no. promise. No, it's fine. I That's promise. We're gonna come back to that. I just get too ahead of y'all. Sorry. I'm just. Uh, yeah, Pam Greer, but she doesn't last very long. They like decapitations in this movie. Mm. Very. They much. also decapitate Pam Greer off screen, which should be illegal. Indeed. Has Pam Greer ever died on screen? That's an awesome question. She was always a killer and never so much a victim. I'll tell you what, you're going to see Escape from L.A. for this podcast, and she is in that film. I do not remember if she lives or dies, though. So we will maybe have this answer in future episodes. I expect her to be one of the last ones. Yeah, yeah we're going we're gonna to leave a real teaser for a film from 1997 on this podcast <laughs> for the next three weeks. Happy 21, Escape from L.A. Um <laughs> Yeah, Natasha Hinstridge, we talked about this before the podcast, actually a pretty good actress. Now in Species, which is her big debut, not a lot of words being flung out there in Species. It's much more about, you know, having Ph- sex. Physical and performance, yes. yes. Yeah, physical performance, that's the best way to put it. She was in, I believe, Maximum Risk with Jean-Claude Van Damme at this point. And, by the way, she replaced Courtney Love. Oh, I know. I did hear that. Yeah. She got ran over, her foot got ran over by a yeah. Volkswagen. True story. This is a last-second replacement, but I think she does a pretty good job in this. Doesn't mean the movie's any good. I was she's say, not the problem, really. She is maybe the only person who's genuinely engaged in her time on screen. Because, again, I'm not trying to drag Ice Cube out of hand. I actually think, in time, he became a remarkably adept comic actor, of all things. Sure. But when tasked with doing the taciturn tough guy, Ice Cube is no Sam Elliott. I would say oh, it's a very least. unfair comparison. <laughs> Nobody's Sam Elliott. We talk Sam Elliott uh, without the mustache or with the mustache. I mean, with mustache, he's untouchable. untouchable. Without, there's a conversation, but ultimately a moot one. I have something else to say about Claire Duvall, though, who I usually love. This is around the time of Carnival, which is a great lost right. TV show. Mm-hmm. I, I feel she has no interest in being in this movie. Does she deliver any of her dialogue with any? Does she want to be here? You know, it's, 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 she's know. just trying to leave the movie the entire time. I would say that... The I don't only, blame her, by the way. The only her. line readings with real gravitas are Natasha Henstridge and then possibly the fellow who plays the leader of the mutants. End of list. Richard well, Citrone. <laughs> Joanna Cassidy gets to explain how they get the ghosts out. That was fun. But I want to come back to that now, oh, if I may. I just keep getting ahead of things. No, no, no. You're, I have another you, thing to talk about that I can't remember right now. You led us right back to where we need to be, because I want to talk about, of all the things in Ghosts of Mars, you know, there are a lot of decapitations, a lot of burnt orange sets, a lot of uh, red shirts getting murdered on screen in noncommittal fashion. But 
I want to talk about the point where Natasha Henstridge appears to ingest Molly and then subsequently purge a ghost from her body by having hallucinations. I want theories. She could see what they want. But she, oh, that goes without question. It's like an Independence <laughs> Day when Bill Pullman gets the psychic exp- exposition blast from the aliens. Great part of Independence Day. And I, 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 I want to talk about like what, what happened. How, how could Natasha Henstridge vomit a ghost? Well, as we all know, ghosts do not like Molly. <laughs> this has been the long established thing before the end of the 22nd century. Ghosts do not like Molly. So once that Molly kicked in... I think that in, was noted in Victorian times. Yeah, this could be going back. We're talking centuries at this point, Dom. Stay I don't want to explain it to you like that, but it's just a, it's just a fact that you can look up. I will, let, me, let me pose a question to the two of you. If this sequence had happened in Dark Star, we probably would have thought it was amazing, right? Because it would have been you know, like funny and it would have felt like it fit in with that movie. Quite possibly. And I think it's, that's an example of how context can triumph over form it especially came out of when nowhere. the form is nonsense it came out of nowhere she had a necklace she pops and pills suddenly jason statham says all right all right all right and he just pops in he kind of moves her mouth around which i never understood how that's meant to make someone swallow anything unless you guys <laughs> are like nurses and can tell because like i think i would just go <clears throat> but um let's move on from that unless somebody's snoring you know you kind of try to shut their mouth while they're sleeping that's all i can think of Mm, yeah, trick someone with sleep apnea is the best. <laughs> Get the machine, everybody. Um, anyway, about this about this medicine, uh, aka drugs that she's taking to get rid of the the ghost issue. I don't know, Dom. I, I don't know, and I don't know if if the the writers had any clue either. And truly, if there was one film that I rented from a blockbuster video <laughs> in the year two thousand and two. That heck contains multitudes and offers no true answers. It is John Carpenter's Ghosts of Mars. Oh, wow. Mm. And honestly, I don't have a better way to take us out of that. So we're going to get out of the I, weird... I didn't even get to t- t- oh, talk please. about one big point. Please. All right. So that's the whole thing. They're always loaded with these humongous guns. Intergalactic yes. monster guns. That, man, she's Natasha's really strong to hold it. And, you know, I'm surprised Jason Statham can as well. But well, Little Jason Statham. Little Jason Statham. But um, it's known that if you shoot one of the, the inhabited miners, that the ghost just pops out and inhabits another person. Yet they still go out constantly with their guns and they shoot them up. And then what's going to happen? They do a full tilt Rambo sequence, in fact, when to the sick riffs of both Anthrax and Buckethead, the <sighs> the space cops commit murder. That is a sentence. And anyway, the space cops commit murder. And yes, Natalie dredges up a good point that we should address before we move on, which is why kill a ghost of Mars? Why kill it all, Dom? <laughs> <laughs> Can they be decapitated? But then again, their ghost will. You would move then on. free the spirit, presumably. Yes. What we haven't explained is that the ghosts of Mars that were released have no idea that they've been completely taken over. Correct. They're unleashed from a catacomb. A catacomb, yes. but they don't know that their con- their country, their planet, has been completely 
taken over by humans. But I believe that's the reason why they wish to commit murder, was at least my understanding. I thought that they had no idea and thought that they were the intruders. They still assume that they had power because they're so ancient and saw Natasha and her group. Oh as yeah, I intruders. believe that. I think that yeah. if they they have very, at the very least think that this is still their planet and that these these Earthlings have got to go. Yeah, I, I got that from yeah. the movie. But you know, the only way to kill these things, I've actually thought about this over the last couple of minutes. Mm. You would have to find another cave that you could close off from everybody else, and have to involve self sacrifice on the part of maybe a Jericho or a Desolation Williams. And because if you blow up and you kill all the possessed people inside this cave, once again, you're going back to the catacomb situation. They can't get out. So now you've contained it. Because like you said, Natalie, if you're killing them in the open, they're just going to hop from body to body forever. You're not going to be able to stop yeah. it. It's a parasitic. It's a pestilence. Really. And if it's just two, if it's just Ice Cube and Natasha Henstridge, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, keep an eye out for John Carpenter's Howard. Ghost of Mars 2. Well, yeah, and I, I was going to say, if the last if the last shot of the film is Endy Indication, which confuses me because it kind of ends in the middle of a scene, but if the last shot is any Indication, Natasha Henstridge and Ice Cube are our only saviors against the coming alien destruction. But, you know, if we're going to talk about dual saviors as uh, our lone... Mm, yeah, there it is. Yeah, there it is. there we go. Dual saviors sparing us from the horrors of alien evil. Let's get to the main event of this week's episode. 1982's The Thing. Which is a far better John Carpenter movie than anything we've talked about in the last 30 minutes. Now, The Thing, I mean, you don't need us listening at home to tell you that The Thing is a substantial movie. You already know that damn well. But what intrigues about The Thing, I would argue, after all of this time, is the way in which The Thing is about the most primal kind of fear. It is about the fear of the man next to you, and the fear within that, that you cannot trust the word of the person standing right next to you, even when, as the film's final image suggests, you might be the last two sane people left on the planet. And even then you can't trust it. And again, when this was going on, this is still, the Cold War is still happening at this point. And now, well, maybe we're also entering into another Cold War, who knows? But these themes are still relevant, you know, 36 years later. It's sadly timeless in that regard. Absolutely. It is a film about paranoia. It is a film about fear. It is a film about the ways in which we can devour one another. And perhaps most terrifying of all, it is about the ways in which science can only answer so much for us. Which of all things is actually also invoked in Village of the Damned. The mm. idea that what we know is not enough to spare us. This is said by Mark Hamill's preacher shortly before he shoots himself in the chin. And after he says that they need more finger paints. <laughs> and after more finger paints. But, I never want to see Mark Hamill kill himself in anything ever again. Yeah. 
Let's uh, let's put that out in the ether. Hopefully, uh, Village Mark, of the Damned is Mark, the only do image. You hear me, Mark. That's a tender. That's a tender reach out. So the thing is an amorphous ideal of fear, which is I think one of the things that makes it so terrifying. To that point, in two of the films we have previously talked about, Village of the Damned and Ghosts of Mars, he would return to this territory for the sake of genuine fear. And I think it's interesting when you consider particularly that the thing was a box office bomb in 1982 when it released. It was a bleak, despairing, genuinely nihilistic vision of horror that was very much at odds with the slasher fashions of the time, which ironically Carpenter in no small part helped to create. Mm -hmm. And you have a film here that is despairing in its way. And yet it's also just a great, great creature feature. Yeah, people at this time were still expecting the, like the cuddly natures of E.T., for example. Well, it came out around the same time. Yeah, so they were it's... not thrilled with this movie. I'm always confused about audiences and, and, and previews like this. Like, don't you know what you're, give, what you're about to get into here? I, I don't understand. But in fairness, you know, so it's funny. Anecdotally, I was not able to personally make any of the music box theater in chicago's recent screenings of the thing on 70 millimeter um, but one of the things that i find really intriguing about that is that a friend of mine came out of the screening complaining at length about the ways in which people were put off by the practical effects that somehow that made it retro for them as opposed to immediate where i would argue this is a film that you can watch at any era in history and I find it just as unsettling as I did when I first watched it you're as saying, a teenager. So you're saying, sorry, don't, you're saying people that, that just saw it recently were put off by it? Yes. That's bizarre. That's my understanding. The, the mere presence of practical effects is enough to put some people off, to make it kitschy for them. And yet, I would argue that particularly the first stomach-bursting sequence of the thing which in its own way is indebted to Alien to mm. circle back. That sequence is horrifying on a way that still holds up today. And I say that because I watched the remake of the film in 2011, or I'm, I'm sorry, the prequel that was also a scene-for-scene scene remake of the film. And it, it all the CG in the world cannot match the primal terror mm. of that initial rollout, I would argue. I think that's the issue with a lot of horror today is that for me personally, if I cannot reach out and touch something, I'm not necessarily scared by it. And I think that's the thing with the that's the thing with the thing prequel is all that CGI. It just takes me right out of it. And that's the thing. There's a physicality unique to mm -hmm. watching a man's torso tear itself apart tendon by tendon in front of you that I would argue you cannot replicate with something that is not practical effect. And maybe we're just being slaves to aesthetics here, but I'll make that point all the same. Yeah. I thought Large Marge was scarier. But it, she is. But you know what? Though? That's claymation. You can actually reach out and touch that. It's not computer, you know? True. And I would say... I still think it's scarier. You know my problems. <laughs> well, and Natalie, I'd like you to get into... So, as a as a modern viewer for whom the thing does not work in the same way, what gets you about it? Huh. I think what bothers me, and I, I understand it, I, understand, I, I like the setting, um, I was a bit distracted by Kurt Russell wearing nothing but a bomber jacket in Antarctica, Um <laughs> Sure, he had the, the the facial hair of the beast, uh, but that 
It's important. Not, it's it does important. Does not make you know, him a, yeah. one of the do- the dogs that they kill, which is another problem for me. Stop hurting dogs uh, in, in, in yeah. freaking movies. Stop doing it. It makes me sad. Dog violence. Dog that's, violence. That's a hard line. That, that's a hard line in cat violence. Dog and cat violence. Now we've noted. Yeah, I'm okay anyway. with the cat violence. It's more the dog violence that really uh, get out of me. this room. <laughs> anyway, um, the. I appreciate the the non-CGI, of course. I mean, we all laughed when we saw the first prequel of Star Wars and we saw Yoda. Um, but it's not it's not necessarily that. I felt like it wasn't it was it was body horror, but I think of it as kind of like a I, I'm just going to sound really pretentious, a poor man's Cronenberg. Now, it's very much trafficking in the same body horror territory, but what I'd argue is that where Cronenberg is often unspooling these much grander themes, these much more macro-level themes, mm-hmm. the thing is a pure B-movie through right. and through. And yeah. I think it's an exceptionally well-crafted B-movie, but it's a B-movie all the same. It is delivering a very particular kind of pleasure in that well, respect. Well, and Carpenter started kind of similar at similar times, didn't they? Like, he made, uh, Cronenberg made Crimes of the Future and School, yes. and that became a, a, a very well-known piece of art. Um, and he do- he goes through, you know... Rabbit. Ra- and then... Rabbit especially. I loved Rabbit, mm-hmm. and I prefer that any day to the thing. Yeah, for me, I think, like you said, it's, it's such a B-movie. It's a creature feature. And I think with but this our, movie, it's more about just the the horror and the grossness as opposed to what Cronenberg really taps into really well is the psychological aspect of a lot of yes. things. And I do think that this is just another, it's a genre movie as yeah. opposed to a psychological thriller, you know? This is a movie where you are paying your ticket, which was probably $4 back then. Oh, God, right. that hurts so much. <laughs> to watch a man's chest rip the fuck open. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you really are. I mean, I, I just love the effects in this. I really do. And, and I yes. do like the, the the characters. And I, I am a slave to to physical special effects. And so I, that never gets old. And I and I miss it. And I and I do love when I still see it every once in a while in a in a modern day movie. Oh, absolutely. And I think like the fit the tactility of the thing is a lot of what makes the thing for people. I think to an end. The fact that it, again, it feels like Sinu being torn apart Hmm. when you watch one of these people die. I think there's a tactility to the violence of it, because that's the thing. On On its face, the thing is about a half dozen or so guys stuck in an Antarctica base, doomed to die horribly. But it still has a sense of humor about itself. Yes. There's a sequence when they've locked up Blair for going crazy, and they look in on him, and you see the noose in the background, and he says... It's okay. I'm all better now. And there's a scene that, uh, well, I'm, I'll spoil my favorite shot, but that scene later on where, um, what's his name? Uh, God, is it, uh, Nor- Norris, I think, his head comes apart from his body, that part. And they, they you see the, the head crawling away in the background, and they turn around, and they go, you've got to be fucking kidding me. <laughs> I mean, that's funny. Like they, it, there's, a, there's a sense of humor as to what's going on and how outrageous it is, well, and how outrageously yeah. violent it Kurt is. Kurt Russell's prettiness uh, yeah. is certainly... <laughs> Well, it's very laughable in it. We'll talk about this again next week when we get to Russell in Big Trouble Little China. Oh, yeah, that where he um, wears the sleeveless black shirt. Yes. Mm. And in both cases. Oh, no, that's Escape from New York. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) Let's get back to It's a white shirt in uh, Big Trouble. Well, and we're. Now, this is is the height of Kurt Russell in his hunk phase, in fairness. But just the same, this is a movie that is very much 
I feel like it's a very in a weird way because it's about a a military base in Antarctica. The thing feels like a very working class film. Mm. And I think that kind of traces through as a thread at least at the very least with um with Dark Star and with the thing and even with Ghosts of Mars to an extent and even Village of the Dam. These are these feel like very working class narratives. These feel like stories about the kind of rough and tumble people whose stories are not normally assembled about. And one of the things I love about the thing is that in the way Dark Star actively makes a joke about the thing is about a bunch of people who should not be the last wall of contact against an alien invasion trying to stop one in Antarctica. Well, think about, you mentioned this earlier. This also harkens back to Alien. Alien also full of working class people who are also the last you know barrier between an alien takeover on Earth if this alien gets to Earth. So, yeah. Plus, Somewhere. what's more manly than sharing a bottle of scotch, <laughs> waiting to die, knowing that... You're probably the same one, but are you? Yeah. I That's mean, like the ideal manly way, man's yeah. man way to die. They're just like, I'm going to sit here with a bottle of scotch. We're going to wait to see what happens. We're going to see what happens because we're tough pieces of shit. Hmm. Now, can I say shit on this show? Yes, you can. Sure oh. can. Now, I would argue, I want to actually lead us into our intermission with this. Give me your takes in 30 seconds or less. Among Keith David and Kurt Russell, who is the thing, if anyone? Natalie, go. It's not Kurt Russell. I think it is Keith David. You think it if, is Keith if, David? If, if, if it had to be one of the two, I do think it's Keith David. I think we're on the same page, Justin. So, wow, wow. I, I, the, the, only, the reason is, is because we see Kurt Russell first hanging out by himself, and we see him acting too human while there's no other human around. If it, the flip side to that would be if Keith David was waiting there first, acting human, and then Kurt Russell showed up, I would think that Kurt Russell was the thing. Mm-hmm. As it stands, the mystery endures 30 some odd years later. We know not who is the thing, and I'm sorry if you tuned in for answers. But on that note, we're going to jump into our intermission, and then right after this ad break, we're going to get down into the nitty gritty of our first batch of John Carpenter films. Thank you for listening and stay tuned to Filmography. I was wearing the wrong foundation shade for years and no one told me. Thanks, guys. Then I discovered Il Maquillage, the bold new beauty brand using AI to shade match. Their best-selling Woke Up Like This foundation has 50,000 five-star reviews and is a total game-changer for my glow-up. Plus, it's cruelty-free. You can even try before you buy at home for 14 days, risk-free. Take the quiz and get your shade of flawless at ilmakiage.com slash quiz. That's I-L-M-A-K-I-A-G-E dot com slash quiz. And we're back. If you're just joining us at the middle of the podcast, scroll back to the beginning. These are all on the internet, so what are you doing, you silly billy? And if you are somehow just joining us, we are talking about the first week of our five weeks of the films of John Carpenter, specifically Intergalactic Evil this week. Now, before we move on, you know, before the break, we talked a great deal about the films themselves. 
But I also just want to get into cultural context for a moment because, as we discussed in the first half of the show, John Carpenter is nothing if not an aggressively political filmmaker in a number of respects, you know? He he grapples with these things, whether it's in a direct way, all of the escape films, or even They Live, which we'll get to in a few weeks' time. But in the case of these films, we're dealing with it a little bit al- more allegorically, and yet not, given the cultural context of some of these films. So we're going to go chronologically with these real quick, but I want to get into Dark Star, which again, we sort of posited as a Vietnam allegory, and how it coalesces into the weary masculine paranoia of the thing by the early 80s. Let's start with you, Justin. Oh, well, in that case. So we want to talk about what was going on around this time, Dom, pretty much. With yes. The, what films were, were out at this time. Because most Carpenter movies, you would make an allegory with a horror film, but obviously this is much more sci-fi driven. So you look, and it's actually a reference to this movie in this, is um, THX 1138 which is also a student film, I believe, by Lucas back in the day. And there is, I think... You know, a little guy named George Lucas. You know, he did some movie called uh, Howard the Duck a couple years later. (laughs) But um, the big thing going around this time, there's a lot of apocalyptic movies going on. A lot of the Planet of the Apes movies had come out around this time. Uh, I believe if Solent Green hadn't come out, it was pretty close. And then the Omega Man, another Charlton Heston movie that was pretty much a takeoff of I Am Legend at this time. Well, and again, around Dark Star, we're talking about the Vietnam paranoia of the era, which we sort of touched off in the first half. You know, this... this, Stuck in the unknown. Yeah. This overwhelming terror of people stuck in a world they don't understand, subsequently whisked off back to an America that to a large extent they didn't really understand And a lot anymore. of those movies touch upon that, especially Planet of the Apes or the Omega Man. Again, that's post-apocalyptic as well. So, And then by the time the thing rolls around for an interesting contrast in terms here, we're into the Reagan 80s. Granted, we're early, and Carpenter, the cynic he is, is hardly sidestepping it. And there's a kind of paranoia and fear that imbues the thing that is very much... It feels subversive of the time in a lot of respects because you have a film about people who are being told to trust one another at face value and learning the hardest violent way they can't. Maybe one of their kids does drugs. (laughs) (laughs) Just say no is about to happen around this time, too. Exactly. Um, So this time, like you said, Reaganomics, if we want to get economical here, is going on as well. Trickle-down economy. That totally worked, yeah. I think Reagan it worked out awesome for all of us. No all those <laughs> those AP credits are really coming back to really serve me well years later. From a film perspective, we talked about Alien earlier. Okay, that was definitely an influence on this period, on this on this particular film. That was the seventies. Now we're in the eighties. This the thing again is all about paranoia, and as I talked about earlier, that was the big running theme in the early eighties. Throughout the eighties, was a sense of paranoia. Who do you trust? Can you trust anybody? And about anything, uh, AIDS, drugs, um, Satanism. Yeah. And in all of those, the example was the person right next to you could be the monster, could be the one coming to get get you. Yeah. I love that. And then, so if we're drawing this, and this is one of the only episodes where it's going to work out this conveniently, admittedly, some of the timelines will be collapsed. But in this particular discussion, we're going from the mid-70s to the early 80s to now the mid-1990s with Village of the Damned. And now you're playing on, granted, I, look, we're not 
We're not going to be rubes here. I feel like we're deep enough into this podcast that you kind of gathered which films we liked this week and which we didn't by now. But there is value in looking at a 90s that now compared to the fraught constant, the omnipresent terror of the 80s, the constant something is out to get you. We can protect you from it, but something else is out to get you. That notion is being challenged because now you have the relative comparative complacency of the Clinton 90s in which you're rolling out a horror vehicle like Village of the Damned, which is playing with these themes of abortion and of child evil, but is also ultimately pretty noncommittal about them. I think we'd agree. I think not heavy handed. You make a good point about this. Not a lot was going on. And I lived through the 90s, folks, so don't act like I'm just trying to say everything was fine. But, th- you know, things were pretty decent in the mid-90s especially. So I think it's telling that At Carpenter... At least in America. In, in America, America, you were America, solid. By the way, in America, we were doing Kosovo wonderful. Kosovo was doing great. America... This is back when America was great, of course. Um, so it's telling, though, that Carpenter actually had to go back in time to take an, a story from decades earlier and, t- and try to tackle it again because there wasn't a lot going on um, to really comment on in 1995, at least in Carpenter themes, I should say. Exactly. You could you could have these satirical themes. And don't get me wrong, there was satire to be drawn in the mid-90s, which was perhaps drawn by hor- better by horror filmmakers of the era. But Carpenter, in his way, tries to wrestle with a world where, you know, the social order is the absolute. The social order is the thing that holds us together, And what happens when you start to upset that a little bit, especially when you take an idyllic and, lest we sidestep it, lily white American town Mm. and you plunge it into terror. And then by 2001, you have Ghosts of Mars, a different kind of terror, a space terror. Terror the audience is watching. (laughs) Justin Gerber, if you would have been around to be Gene Shalit before Gene Shalit was Gene Shalit, you would have made your I, fortune. I can't do the afro. <laughs> I can't do the afro. You can't pull it off. I can't do it. But I think in the case of Ghosts of Mars, you know, this it's hard because this is an extremely nondescript vision of the future. This is a future that is informed by visions of the future outlined in so many other, you know, B-movie seems charitable for this. Perhaps Z-movie, as it were. Uh, G-movie. G-movie. Ghost. Yeah, got him. But as it goes, in the case of breaking down these films, we don't have an organic out into discussing the rest of what we want to touch on with these movies. So I'm going to take an inorganic out as many of the beings in this film would be described. These films would be described as inorganic. There's my segue. I got there. I dragged myself clawing and thrashing to the finish. We're going to talk about sight because we talk about sight and sound here on filmography and sight as it pertains to cinematography and editing And we're going to jump through these films because to an end, we've talked about a number of these topics throughout the episode at large to date. But I just want to touch on them a little more. And to start, I want to talk about the look of Dark Star. Because Dark Star looks like a parody, but Dark Star is also a great space movie of its time. And it exists at a very particular crux within that. And especially with Dark Star, you have an interesting case in that its editor, Dan O'Bannon, was one of the primary performers in the film as Pinback. He also did the voice of 
both bombs 19 and 20. He was bombs 19 and 20. Nice, a triple performance. I was going to say, these are dramatically opposed bombs, as it were. Maybe this is also paying homage to Peter Sellers, who played three different roles in Doctor exactly. Strange. Exactly. How about that? There's that film history for mm. you. There's that homage. We've done our homework here at Filmography. We know what's good. We like Kubrick. But in the case, but in the case of Dark Star, and you know, Natalie, you bring up Kubrick and Jess, but I think it's really interesting because in that film, a lot of the imagery, oh, particularly, particularly in the way it's shot. You're invoking 2001 very directly because particularly with some of these, the deadpan videos with a number of these neon tinged visuals throughout when it's giving you a visual representation of the layout of the ship, especially a lot of these visuals invoke 2001, the malevolent bomb launch that leads to the genesis of bomb 20 is also a jab at Hal in its way. And that's the thing. It's jabs, but it's also, you know, all things considered, this is six years removed from 2001. Mm -hmm. This is a digestion of that film as text that we are still clawing towards decades later. And I think it's kind of astounding that he can manage that satiric bent in this respect because, as we talked about a little bit before the break... This film really situates you on a ship, or at least the perception of what a spaceship was during this time, down to the very fact that it walks you around the ship, it shows you the innards of the ship, it shows you how claustrophobic the ship is, mm -hmm. and it makes a visual gag out of the fact that the people who operate the ship are almost incidental to the existence of the ship itself. Right, they've been aboard 20 years, only aged 3 years. And and that's, again, that's one of those things that's presented as a gag, but is horrifying in its implication. You know, we would come here decades later and make Interstellar, which plays that exact gag for existential terror and horror. And explains it over and over again. And that's, <laughs> no offense are, to Chris Those Nolan. are some old porn. That's some old porn they have then. It is. Yeah, 20-year-old. Mm. I was going to say, it's 20-year-old smut mounted in their mm, cabins. Yeah. That's that's terrible for them. I didn't even consider the implications of their porn, frankly. Oh, well, I can't believe it. Yeah, they would just have that porn for, for decades. I was going to say, you'd stare at the same wall slack-jawed. I think yeah. you found a new category for filmography. You should just talk about whatever pornography pops up in these films. Mm -hmm. Some will have none. Dark Star, as it were, a strange <laughs> abundance. <laughs> Dark Star, full of pornography. Right. Truly, truly is. Truly. Now, I think what's interesting, though, is if we're talking about sight, the way that Dark Star situates some of its visuals in particular is really interesting because it's very much drawing attention to the transparency of sci-fi films of that era to an end. Uh, that's definitely correct. I just love that they're, that Doolittle says phenomenology. <laughs> Talk to him about phenomenology. And Honestly, then he tries to actually have a, like, well, he does have a philosophical discussion, and that's what changes the bomb's mind. And there's a strange visual representation of that, too, because you have kind of, I would argue, a sight gag. I would argue this for a sight gag, even as hopeless as it is in context of the film. This gag of the man floating outside the vestibule, staring bomb number 20 in the face. And yet, ultimately being out-reasoned by Have, it. Having right. a man-to-bomb conversation, Well, he tricks him. He acts like he agrees, and then he goes back to his Descartes and uh, changes his mind. 
because he doesn't have his doubt anymore. He can only tr- trust himself. Well, what I love about this is is the fact that if Commander Powell was on the spaceship in 2001, maybe things would have turned out differently. Because there's no reasoning with Hal in 2001. They don't even attempt to. They just ask him questions. Why is this happening? Why are you doing this? And that's really it. But maybe if they had sat down and had a conversation with Hal, maybe things would have turned out differently. Now, what's interesting is then, too, we're going to move chronologically through at least, at least this portion of the show because I think it'll be really interesting to see how these things change from time to time. So... If 1974 is very much characterized by the visuals of 2001 and the vision of the future as posited in that film, then jumping ahead the better part of a decade to The Thing, as shot by Dean Cundy, is then an extremely interesting contradiction in terms, because where we're talking satire with Darkstar, we're talking straight-up B-movie, monster movie of the week, you know, we're from the Chicagoland area, so we'll say Sven Gulli as a form of shorthand mm, for this kind beautiful. of filmmaking. Top hat and everything. Absolutely. You know, Sven Gulli taught a generation of us what monster movies are, but maybe not the thing necessarily. <laughs> and I think in the case of the thing, it's very interesting because you then come around to a visual palette that kind of defines what we think of as the Carpenter palette at large, but to an, to an end. You know, there's a great deal of darkness. There's a great deal of foregrounded light within an expanse of darkness, which would become one of the most associated things with his body of work, even though it's arguably more prominent in The Thing than a great number of his films. Mm -hmm. You know, Carpenter, some of his best, and we'll talk about this more in a couple weeks when we get to the Carpenter and Crime episode and talking about films like Assault on Precinct 13 and the Escape movies, Carpenter dealt in dark, terrifying urban palettes to an end. Even in a film like uh, Ghosts of Mars, we'll get back to this in a second, there is a distinctly urbane palette to it. And I think by that contradiction, the isolation of the thing is extremely interesting in his body of work. The major difference between the thing and Ghosts of Mars, and I really, there's no, there's no hyperbole behind this, is that there's no Dean Cundey working on Ghosts of Mars. It's no coincidence that Dean Cundey, the cinematographer, worked in all the best John Carpenter movies because Ghost of Mars is missing something very important, some type of darkness. Is there any darkness in that movie? Are there any? No. Everything is brightly lit, no matter if you're outside or inside, no matter what the circumstance is. Whereas in The Thing, a lot of the time you're just reliant on flares or fires going off to light the scene. Right. Wasn't Ghost of Mars filmed in uh, Albuquerque and they just sprayed everything red? Yes, and by contrast, in The Thing, you have... Granted, The Thing was also shot on sound, soundstage, but you have a sense of place to it. You have right. a defined, solid sense of place. And at that, a tiny sense of place. And I think that's also crucial, because in the way the film is shot, The Thing is overwhelmed with isolation. Hmm. Isolation is palpable throughout the film. And again, because the darkness envelopes so much of that movie... Here's the thing. Even when they're... Oh, here's the thing. We'll have yeah. a... Ah. Good night, oh, everybody. No. Even when they're outside, when all you... Granted, it's night, and the whole world is out there for them. They're not trapped inside. They're outside. It still feels like they're absolutely... It still feels claustrophobic. When they're out they, there by a fire, it still feels like they're absolutely alone, and there's nowhere to go, even though there's literally everywhere to go. I was going to say, even when you're inside the base, this is a bunch of guys trapped in the middle of Antarctica. Yes. Right. With a presence they cannot begin to understand. 
And to that extent, let I feel a certain remorse making a direct segue from the thing into Ghosts of Mars. But if we're talking visual, this is where I want to draw a connection between the two because much of the runtime of Ghosts of Mars is devoted to aping a number of John Carpenter films, which we'll come back to even more in a little bit. But by and large, in the case of Ghosts of Mars, that is a film that almost entirely repurposes the dramatic plot of the thing, for starters. This is a film that involves a malevolent presence moving between bodies. It is an ancient presence. It has been unearthed by the hubris of man into the modern era. And where the thing deals with that for broad terror, Ghosts of Mars attempts to make it into an exploitation movie. But all the same, it is very much shot in the style of the thing, and at least that it answers the question, what if the thing had predator-style cutaways to a malevolent Martian presence entering people's bodies in a fashion that... As I watched Ghost of Mars, and granted, we are sitting here 17 years later watching it through a very different vantage, but, you know, when I watched The Being in Ghost of Mars, however we might define it, enter a body, and watching those people stumble around in confusion, it invoked the film Space Jam. <laughs> Joe Pica, 1996. Mm-hmm. And it invoked the sequences in which <laughs> the monsters... Shout out there. Enter the bodies and claim Patrick Ewing and Muggsy Bogues and other luminaries of the Sean time Bradley. for themselves. Yes, Sean Bradley as well. When when the ghosts in Ghosts of Mars, the ghosts are also not ghosts. They are ancient beings, so the entire title is a bit of a, mis- of a misnomer in that respect. But when the ghosts are claimed and they claim their new hosts... It looks like when the monsters steal the talent. <laughs> That's the kindest thing you can say about Ghosts of Mars. That really is. That's sweet. It looks like Space Jam. That's not that kind. Do you know what bothers me the most about Ghosts of Mars? And this is... Please. This is not a stretch. It's the awful fade-out fade-ins that he uses throughout... Not just this movie, but also vampires. That drives me absolutely crazy. He will fade-out and fade-in to, to shots that take place like three seconds later. For no reason. I don't know if he's trying to stretch out the movie or what it is. Who edited this? It's um, Paul C. Warshilka. Warshilka. Who I, th- I think his brother worked on something else with, with Carpenter Some as well. Some of the early films, yeah. yes. It's, it's awful. It looks bad in a movie that already looks bad. Do you know what I'm talking about? Those sequences I'm talking about? Yes, there are scenes where the film fades out of a character losing consciousness and then returns to it seconds later. It It's it's annoying and it's absolutely unnecessary. It's almost, it's, it's worse than when you have slow motion for no reason. That's what it's like for me. It's like watching some other version of John Woo. Now John Woo's discovered instead of slow motion, we're into these fade out fade ins uh, left and right. Now, if we're talking inappropriate dissolves, that's actually a good jump back a few years to village of the damned, which is mm. also plagued mm. by the same. I would argue now, Village of the Damned, unlike Ghost of Mars, is not posited so much as an exploitation action movie. This is 
The nicest thing I can say about Village of the Damned, as interpreted by John Carpenter, is that it at least feels like a cohesive movie, which is I, not a compliment by and large. Well, but again, when you're watching something like Vampires or Ghosts of Mars, it seems every scene is just going in circles. I don't feel like anything's actually progressing throughout those throughout that movie or Vampires. But again... I do feel like when we're going from scene to scene in Village of the Damned, yes, we are going somewhere. Yes. This is leading to something. This scene is necessary to lead us to the next scene. Now, Justin, I want to point out what you're arguing for on this podcast at this point <laughs> is basic spatial continuity. Am I going to be... I'm going to be on the Criterion Collection for Village of the Damned. I'll be the big critic at the very, in the back of the box. This movie makes sense, Justin Gerber, <laughs> Consequence of Sound. <laughs> This movie is a composed narrative. This movie has scenes that say, okay, this, this is going to happen next. You know? <laughs> so, you know, we can sit here and disparage, and we have frequently throughout this episode already. But I think one of the really interesting things compositionally is the way in which, again, Village of the Damned interprets time as eminently malleable. You know, characters age years within mm-hmm. seconds. And granted, you know, 2001 laid out the, the bone to the spaceship. We're all for continuity jumps here at sure. Consequence jump, Sound. We'll jump eight years, no problem. But absolutely, the the jump to the white-haired children is, I would argue, particularly jarring. Well, I, was, I was actually okay with that. Here's the thing, here's the problem I have. I think there's a second act missing in this movie. We talked right. about that earlier. But my problem... When you literally when they jump from the first act to the second act, is they've got that that awful <laughs> cut of after I think my, uh, what's uh, Christopher Reeves Christopher Reeves' Mara? wife. In oh, the I'm movie. sorry. Um... Anyway, when she kills herself and he goes out there running after, her, and then they they cut up to the sky, and all of a sudden appearing in the sky is the daughter. <laughs> looking on like this is the end of act one and then it fades to black just that's that's a brutal scene for me no there's there are a number of continuities like death never has a weight in village of the damned which i think it would be one of our macro level criticisms in the same way that ghosts of mars doesn't really have an emotional weight to watching pam Greer's head be found on a pike but i think in that missing act two, death would have a weight. I think they're so numb to it by now, and now that now they're just they just feel trapped in these circumstances that that they've moved on. And that's true. There there is a lot of horror in that absent sequence of the film. <laughs> yeah, where is this? You know, he he meant it for this to be like a three hour movie with intermission. Right. Apparently, the Barry Lyndon of its time, truly. <laughs> the styles alone. But before we move on from cinematography, I just want to jump for a moment into a segment that is a regular here at Filmography, The Lasting Image. Now, over the past four films, we've had a lot to consider in terms of the visual. We've had a great deal to consider in terms of the sequences that hold a great dramatic weight. Now I want to open the discussion to you about the shots that lasted for you most, that endured for you over time, and why they're all from Ghosts of Mars. <laughs> You've got ten from Ghosts of Mars. Nothing <laughs> from the thing, absolutely Which movie did you want to lead off with, Dom? Well, I think we can jump in with yours, Justin. Where would you like to kick us in? My favorite shot and sequence is from Dark Star is when Commander Powell is revealed. I think it's pretty unique 
usually when we see somebody awaken from a cryogenic freeze, they're laying down and something gets opened up like a coffin. And in this, it looks like he's almost standing and they're lifting up a hatch and he's looking up. I thought that was a great touch. And of course, my favorite moment, though, my favorite shot is when he's looking up teleconnectedly saying, um, how are the Dodgers doing? <laughs> because admittedly, I would probably say something stupid like that, too. <laughs> like, how are the Cubs doing today or something? I mean, I, I probably would. What did I miss? I, I, that, for that humor to happen that late in the movie when the stakes are at their highest is... I loved it. I love that oh, bizarre humor from Carpenter. Because there's that entire bit of Doolittle going, you know, the commander. The commander will tell us what to do. <laughs> and that eventual payoff as the com- of the commander is a terrified man sent into cryogenic freeze. It's beautiful. Yeah. Now, the other two are going to both come from the thing. So I'll jump in to start. I feel like, you know, it's an easy shot from the movie. But if we're going to talk about practical effects from the thing and practical effects that really linger over the decades in particular, the shot of the Petri dish erupting. Oh, yeah. Because to me, that the entire Petri dish sequence is like one of my favorite horror scenes ever. Single scenes. In that it's this illustration of the paranoia that we've talked about in the film so much up to this point. And the absolute fear of not being able to trust your fellow man. And the idea that you can reduce it to a single solitary test and that you can still just sit here. It's like it it reminds me a lot of the uh, Russian roulette sequence in The Deer Hunter where Mm. you're asked to sit with these people who you might watch die in a minute and you're waiting for them to meet their maker. I think the genius of that scene is... Even if something goes wrong with the blood, we don't know how it's going to go wrong and what it's going to look like. So when he does say, you know, we'll do you last, and he just taps it, and it, that blood just becomes absolutely physical and, and just leaps it up. It feels and, and like it's screaming at and him. And screams yes. in pain. It's, and I, I can never get the timing down as many times as I've seen this movie. Between that and the, um, the stomach becoming a, a giant yeah. shot, I can never get the timing down. And as a testament to that scene, it's still, I think it's still effective... You know, 36 years later. And now, Natalie, I understand your scene was from The Thing as well. No, it was not. It was from Dark Star. Um, uh, mine was regard was exactly when Telby, the uh, character, floats and disappears into uh, the Phoenix meteor. Yeah, it's great. As I said before when we were talking, he's euphoric about it. He's so excited to disappear and become one of them. And he's floating and he's so calm and he starts mm. to become this this brighter and brighter and then and and he's slowly saying his friend's name. He's like, Do little, do little, do little mm. and it fades and it fades and there's beauty in it. And then he says, I have to tell you something or I think I believe it is. It's yeah. some and you never hear what and comes after. You don't after. hear what comes after, but he becomes like part of what he always wanted to be, and he's gone. And I think it's gorgeous. And that's the thing. It's at once a moment of like bleak comedy in its way, but there's also a really genuine terror to that sequence. Right. Well, you're going to the unknown. Like You, you figure he's just going to die, but now I feel like he's still out there. I was going to say, he might be the star child for all we oh, know. Oh, yes. And what I love about that character, too, is he was the most miserable of them all. He was already so detached from everybody. He was always up there on that little glass hub at atop the ship. Mm-hmm. So he kind of gets a happy ending. Right. And I should also say that that was my favorite part of Dark Star. But I think the thing, you know, it's probably 
of, of the four films, my favorite shot is probably that mouth opening up during the uh, defibrillator scene. Yeah. And, and that's pretty, uh, pretty memorable, I have to say. You know, there is an entire... There aren't a lot of movies where an entire generation can look back and go, <laughs> I remember watching well, I this the first time. The Thing is one of those movies. My runner-up was actually the one-hour, 32-minute mark in Ghost of Mars. Do you know what happens in this part? I don't know what happens, Justin. What cuts to black and the credits start to roll. <laughs> I was so... I was just elated. That's I think I did cute. a cheers. You were ecstatic at the notion of the film ending. Mm. I felt those eu- euphoric as Talby in Dark Star going to the <laughs> asteroid field. There's there there it is. I just kept saying Doolittle over and over again when I saw the uh, the credits of Ghost of Mars. It was like beautiful. a Pixies record in oh, slow God. motion. Uh, compared to a man flinging himself into the Phoenix asteroid, I don't have an out for us. But you know what? Let's jump into sound for a moment because we're going to talk, especially in the coming weeks, about the way in which Carpenter uses sound and the way in which sound is used to make the violence of his movies all the more visceral in Mm. particular. And I think, you know, especially, I'm just going to jump into the thing here, but right off the bat, because Ennio Morricone's score is one of the things about the thing that people return to years after the film. Even people I know who don't particularly care for the movie return to that score because it's one of the only substantial Carpenter films that doesn't feature his own score, which is interesting. And then beyond that, I think it's a film that really takes the emotion the emotion of his films and externalizes it in a lot of ways because it's all it's all synth certainly by the early 80s but it's also all nervous tension mm-hmm. and a, a lot of the incidental music i think he went back and with his other co-composer alan howarth they did a lot of the incidental music that was inspired by the main score that ennio morricone brought but what i love about the thing if you think about all the horrific sequences, there's no score at all. It's all sound. It's all the aliens screaming or flame tor- flamethrowers trying to go off or yes, things exploding. It's all it's, sound design. It's all dependent on what you're seeing and what these people are emanating, which is which is a testament because, you know, if, I, I've not seen, believe it or not, the Thing prequel. But I have a feeling, and correct me if I'm wrong, that during those sequences there was music. There is, and oh, it's yeah. it's a lot of melodramatic bass yeah. and what have you. No, that's in the thing, the original. And that's the thing. Now there ah, is, that's there the is, ah, there you are. Now you're on with me. Now there's a lot of bass, and as a tribe called Quest once said, it was bass heavy and just right. And <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> I'm sorry, Justin. And I, I think honestly, with the thing. The sparseness of the score is what makes it because Morricone lays back. He, you know, there are there are these tones that have become the influence for so many horror scores over the years. But by that same token, you know, the tones don't overwhelm the feature. the The tones are not present in the scenes where the worst of the creature design is happening. I, I've I've got film school Justin here in my in my little note here about I can the score. Tell, yeah, here it comes. Yeah. <clears throat> Morricone's score paints Dread mostly as incidental music. It absolutely does. That. I really like that film school. That'll be on the back of the Criterion Collection for the thing. <laughs> it's good. 
No, and that's the thing. The the dread never emanates from the worst of the gore you see on screen. The dread is the unseen. The dread is the unpredictable. The All, dread yeah. is the lingering fear in the periphery. Which, fear in the periphery is something we're going to turn back to over and over and over again in the weeks to come. Because that's one of the things, as much as anything, at which Carpenter mm. is a master. That capacity to instill fear in the thing you can't see every much every bit as much as the thing you can i've said the thing a lot you, I, I i stopped with the joke but yes you. Did. i know i'm i'm really nailing this home but if we're talking about the one morricone score that is the only outlier in this week's episode because the rest of our compositions this week are by carpenter or carpenter and friends which we'll get to at the very end but I want to come back to the Dark Star compositions for a mm. second because there's really just, there are two or three at most humming synth and drum machine tones mm. throughout the film that largely largely populate this world of dissonance and of darkness and of silence to an end. Agreed. And what sticks with me the most besides the, kind of, albeit cheap, film school sound effects are used throughout the movie, especially with the alien, for example, is the song Benson, Arizona. Oh, it was great. That bookends the movie, which is just, that's the most memorable piece of anything. Can in we that. bookend this episode with that? I might bookend this with Benson, Arizona, I at least for the first one. You have to, you have to. But I, I love the opening. It sets the tone for the entire movie at that point, too. And then it nails the ending with him surfing to that Well, planet. and it almost, it creates... To go back to Strange Love once more, it creates the same kind of anachronisms that mm. the Strange Love score largely induces. Well, and then if we're getting into another Carpenter score, and let's go chronologically here from this point, but if we're getting to Village of the Damned, one of the more interesting things is how it tries to transpose, you know, with Carpenter and Dave Davies weighing in on this score, you try to take the Carpenter score and make it a little more orchestral, a little more 90s horror in so many words. The, the thing that works here is even though they're using, he's using Dave Davies, who was the guitarist from the Kinks and whose son actually is in John Carpenter's band today, by the way, Daniel Davies. What I love about the Village of the Dam score, it's obviously not one of his top five or even 10 best scores but there's a great lack of electric guitar, which permeates vampires and ghosts of Mars. And I, and you know, once again, it's like my backhanded compliment. It's like, at least it's not those scores. That's, that's what I can say about the score for those. For and the, honestly, I, I don't mean to move on with such abbreviation, but maybe that's the nicest thing we can say is it's a perfectly polite horror score. Whereas let's jump forward to 2001 oh, to yeah. bring this out. Here we go. Let's talk about ghosts of Mars with music by... And here's the list. John Carpenter, Buckethead, and all six members of Anthrax. How the hell did you not want to shoot a, shoot a bitch, you know? That. Don't you just feel like you want to fight in slow motion for ten minutes? Yeah. To the throw, sounds of Buckethead and Scott Ian? Throw the slowest roundhouse kick in cinema right, history. Right, throw somebody over my shoulder. Several times. 
several times. There's a lot of people being thrown over shoulders and go somewhere. There it is. There's because Natasha's very good at that. She'll just either bend your the, your back arm over you and. Uh... I was gonna say there's a lot of judo throwing in the film Ghosts of Mars. Mm-hmm. If you watch closely in those slow motion, you were totally gonna bring up that, Steve Gutenberg. That would have been your again. second Gutenberg reference. Yeah. yeah, I was gonna say I need you know that's a demographic that no podcast is tapping on, and I'm trying to work it right now as best I can. Well, All fun right. fact, I read you know obviously Natasha Anstridge replaced Courtney Love, but. Ice Cube actually replaced Steve Gutenberg, who was supposed to be Desolation Williams. <laughs> that's not a real so fact. That's, um, how about that? <laughs> I, need, I need to believe in a Hollywood where Steve Gutenberg was once supposed to play a man named Desolation Williams. <sighs> but be that as it may, you know, the Ghost of Mars soundtrack is interesting because, yeah, I, I wrote in my notes, for those of you listening at home, I, I had only two words for the Ghosts of Mars notes, and they were, in all capital letters, sick riffs spelled yeah. with a lot of K's and Z's, because that, <laughs> oh, yeah. is, that is, by and large, the sonic palette of the film. I wish that movie and Starship Troopers could be combined. Aesthetically, oh, yeah. I don't think they're dissimilar. The only difference is Starship Troopers is doing it on purpose. That's right. That's a whole other podcast, Starship Troopers, by the way. We, we should do Verhoeven, a Verhoeven podcast. <laughs> Um, what's funny about you want to talk about being inspired by the times you get anthrax and buckethead here this is also very close to the time of guns and roses big return and buckethead yeah. was in that return yes. lineup and we're also we are smack dab in the middle of of um like this rap rock i was gonna say now i will say as someone who grew up under new metal we are at the new, tail new end by say, then yeah. Yeah, yeah new metal with an umlaut um did yeah. new metal end for the during the uh, the hero song that Chad Kroger and the guy from Saliva did, yes, but that was like o two o three. So we're still we're, we're bereft right of we're bereft of the death of new metal as seen through the Spider Man song. And I think with Ghost of Mars, what's really interesting is that you know this is not. I would say it's barely a Carpenter score. That's the one thing that really lasted with me. You know, there is a lot of drop D riffing. But there's not much that really recalls one of his classic scores. You're right. They drop those riffs. They're sick. They're ill. What am I say? You know what? You said this is barely a Carpenter score. I'll go even further. You, you've touched upon something. I think everything from Vampires on is barely a Carpenter movie. Like, if you told me, if you just played that movie and you said, who do you think directed this? I would never in a million years think, oh, this is a John Carpenter movie. Well, thank you, Justin, because in the rest of the four weeks of this podcast, you've given me like 13 years worth of movies that barely (laughs) qualify under the purview. No, no, no. Because after this is, well, you got three more movies after this. Because you did nothing in the aughts. Between Ghosts of Mars and The War, there was nothing. I'm saying before, you've got, you know, 23 years of material that you could say, okay, this is a John Carpenter movie. There's like a four or five movie stretch there where it's just unrecognizable and it's just for the check, I guess. Now, on this episode of Filmography, we've talked a great deal about the films we've seen, the films we have yet to discuss, and the films which we have yet to address. So if I may, before our programming schedule was set for this coming season of Filmography, both Justin and Natalie had to watch the film Vampires, which will be discussed in the fourth of our five episodes for the purposes of this podcast before later being told that they did not have to discuss it. 
And as my penance for requesting that both of these fine people do that, I'm going to give each of them the floor to briefly touch on uh, the film Vampires starring James Woods. Justin, if you'll kick us off. Dom, thank you so much. I do have my notes here. I did not delete them. Let me let me give you some real quick beats here. Um, they call vampires goons in these movies. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you know this, but Frank Darabont is the person whose car gets jacked in the movie by Daniel Baldwin. Um, the Catholic Church accidentally creates vampires. This movie ends on a boner joke. And after the party sequence... Literally nothing happens for 35 minutes. Vampires is arguably John Carpenter's worst movie. Don't at me. Except it does have one of my favorite gifts, which is James Woods walking out of an exploding motel. That's the last, uh, it's the last good memory I've got of James Woods, by the way. Natalie, what do you think? James Woods, baby. Um, <laughs> open wide. That's something I remember him saying. Um, you know, it was, it was, I was glad that I drank that with some wine. Mm. Um, more so because as I wrote notes, I forgot to bring here about it because I realized we, I thought we weren't going to talk about it. Um, I referred to James Woods as James Kahn exclusively in pages of notes. James Conn could have played the role of Jack Crow. Well, it's one of those things where it's just like I always say either name, but I know I can't tell which is the bigger scumbag. Um, but James <laughs> Woods, it's so sad because, you know, I think about him being, a, you know, he worked at the Quickie Mart for a while. And anyway, but this is about vampires. And yeah. uh, man. Well, if it makes you feel any better, uh, Sean Young once superglued his dick to his leg. Wow. Oh, I do think it's interesting that Alec Baldwin was originally offered the part of his brother Daniel uh, Daniel Baldwin eventually oh, accepted. Yes. Uh, but I like how far down the list he had to go. Well, it's funny because Alec Baldwin was in Ghosts of Mississippi, but not in Ghosts of Mars. So that's also another thing there that we could talk about. And... In our next season of filmography, we'll draw the symmetries between the films Ghosts of Mississippi and Ghosts of Mars at length. We will do this over seven episodes. Mm. It will be our most ambitious season to date. Fun note, we will do none of that. And I think on that note, we're going to bring episode one of filmography John Carpenter to a close. I thank you both for joining me. I thank... Michael Rothman and Kat Blackard at the Consequence Podcast Network for continuing to make all of these wonderful shows happen. I thank both of you for joining me. Mm. Justin, where can the good people of the internet find you in the future? Well, you know, again, I co-host a couple other podcasts on the Consequence Podcast Network, including, again, the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast. Our next major crop of episodes will be on it. Five episodes dedicated to it the book plus an episode dedicated to the adaptations if you like long podcasts you're gonna love love what we do at the losers club and halloweenies a michael myers podcast in which we've reviewed uh, and gone over the history of every single halloween movie up until this point god help us all we do plan on doing the rob zombie movies as well well let me tell you <laughs> where all the places you can find me places that you know, I'm not quite sure yet. 
because I will find out when I would perform next, and I don't know when it is yet. But my social media on Instagram, my handle is Prodigal Snout, and uh, that ha- that has lots of gems. Um, let's see, uh, Dom. Cat's account. Do the cat's yeah, account. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The cat's account. The cat's account. My cat has an has an account uh, at Pouty Aristocat. My cat Calanus Solenska really has some great uh, uh, looks to her face. Um, <laughs> so I'm using that for the rest of my life. You know, she's got some great looks to her face. Yeah. Um, otherwise, oh yeah, I perform generally at Second City or the Elbow Room and wherever else I'm uh, invited. And also I participate in uh, several uh, small film projects with uh, some friends from Second City. Well, thank you both very, very much for joining me this week. Again, if you've enjoyed the podcast you've just listened to, then wonderful. Thank you for enjoying us. If you haven't, then fuck off and die. And if you have enjoyed the podcast and you're not at all in that second category, you can find us on Facebook at Filmography Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at D. Suzanne Mayer. I don't do it that much, but I am around when I do. And you can leave us a review on iTunes and or Podchaser. We are greatly and sincerely appreciative of all of those conversations. And otherwise, please stay tuned. This is the first of only five episodes of John Carpenter discussion throughout the month of October and late September, as it were. Thank you to both of you for joining me. And thank you to all of you for listening. And we will see you all next week. Consequence Podcast Network.